you'd remain standing as the bell ringers, bell choir returns to their seats, and turn your attention in your copy of the Word, if you have it with you, to Genesis chapter 3, and read there with me, if you will. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of day, the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception, in pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field and the sweat of your Face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil." And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden 
and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Heavenly Father, in humility and lowliness of mind, we come to this text from Genesis 3 in your holy word. We desire to come and receive with freshness the truths contained therein that we might better know who we are and understand the world we live in and know what great things you have done for us so that we might worship you with thankful hearts and spirit and truth. Grant the power of your Holy Spirit to bring both understanding and application, we pray. For we ask in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Continuing our series in basic theology, we come now to the doctrine of the fall and original sin. And it is here at the very beginning of Genesis that we find the answer to some of the most common questions we face in life. What's wrong with this world? What's wrong with me? How does sin work? Why is there evil? Why do I keep falling short? Why do I keep on sinning? What can be done about my sin? Is there any hope for the way things are? Are babies capable of sin? What about an age of accountability? Why can't we just all get along? Why are there so many denominations? Why do I lose my temper when that guy drives slow in the left lane? Why do I yell at my wife or my husband and my children? Why did Jesus need to die on the cross? Now, I'm guessing that most of you, maybe even every single one of you, are already thinking that the scriptural evidence for the fall and original sin is so obvious that surely no one claims that they can deny original sin. Anyone that claims the name of Christ, that is. But according to author Danielle Schroyer, a former pastor and theologian, Jesus didn't believe this doctrine and neither did the early church. In her book, Original Blessing, Putting Sin in Its Rightful Place, she writes, You may be surprised to learn the church flourished for four centuries without any concept of original sin at all. She claims it's fair to say Augustine popularized the idea of original sin, and by the time of the Reformation, it had become widespread in the West. While the early church talked about sin as an action or, or an illness, Augustine and others shifted language to an inborn sin nature. What do you think? Does this view of Scripture stand the test of plain reading? What did Paul write in Romans 5? Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin... And thus death spread to all men because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, 
much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. These Holy Spirit-inspired words were written several hundred years before Augustine. Clearly, Paul had a firm grasp upon the fall of Adam and original sin. For those who may wonder why it is important to have a good biblical understanding of the fall and original sin, these words from G.C. Burkauer from his studies in dogmatics should uh, be helpful. This subject is a matter of the greatest importance. For the man who misconstrues the nature of his sin is engaged in an urgent peril. Sin is a very vicious and mortal enemy, an irascible and persistent power which must certainly be known in order to be overcome. Understanding the fall and original sin helps us to understand who we are, the inescapability of sin, and reveals our need for a Savior. Apart from an understanding of the nature of sin and the origin of sin, we will always, always tend to ignore, justify, or just plain try to explain away our sin. But sin cannot be ignored. When we sin, our sin is always an offense against God. David prayed, against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And you recall the context. Sin is not merely hurting someone or doing what is deemed to be a cultural taboo. Joseph resisted Potiphar's wife, saying, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? We sin when we refuse to hear the divine word of God and respond in faith. And faith is required to not sin. Even the perfectly straight plowed furrows of the diligent, done at the right time of the season by a wicked farmer, is sin. And each time we sin, we cultivate a spiritual hardness toward God. Sin is missing the divine mark in failing to fulfill the purpose of being God's image bearers. Sin brings moral pollution and defilement that exclude the sinner from God's holy presence. Sin is a rebellion against divine authority and a transgression of God's holy law. As such, sin brings guilt and liability to God's and God's justice and punishment. When Adam embraced the serpent's lies, unbelief quickly set in motion corrupt desires that produced disobedience. As James put it, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. As we read the account of the temptation in the garden here in Genesis 3-6, we see the anatomy of a threefold pattern of sinful desire that is confirmed elsewhere in Scripture. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. This is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, 
and the pride of life that John records in 1 John chapter 2, 16. Good for food, lust of the flesh. Pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. Desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. And if you go back and read the account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, you will find that Satan followed this very same pattern. The great irony of Genesis 3-6 is that man already possessed every good thing to satisfy all his desires, and he would have enjoyed them fully had he obeyed God's command. He was created in God's image, surrounded by the paradise of pleasure and beauty, and commissioned to subdue and rule the entire world. Yet man's acceptance of Satan's deceit made God's gifts seem hollow and awaken deceitful desires that disrupted man's joy and led him into his disobedience. Consequently, he lost the very things that he thought he was gaining. While some attempt to minimize Adam's sin as a small transgression, it's just eating a piece of fruit after all, Others, like William Perkins, Perkins, see that this one sin contained many sins. Unbelief of the truth of God's Word, contempt of God, pride and ambition, ingratitude for God's good gifts, craving to be wiser than God, in short, the breach of the whole law of God. John Owen reminds us that since sin is enmity against God, every sin is hatred toward the Lord and rebellion against His authority. Whether or not we are believers, the least degree of sin is hostility against God, just as every drop of poison is poison, and it will infect, and every spark of fire is fire and will burn. The question is, do we believe that? But before I get too far ahead of myself, let's make sure we know what is meant by the terms the fall, original sin, and then we will conclude with the cure. So first, the fall. When we speak of the fall, we are referring to Adam's fall from grace when he first sinned against God. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. Our first parents, being seduced by the subtlety and temptations of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This their sin, God was pleased according to His wise and holy counsel to permit, having purposed to order it to His own glory. By this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body." Paul in Romans affirms that all mankind is naturally under the guilt and power of sin, the reign of death, and the inescapable wrath of God. He traces this back to the sin of the one man whom, when speaking at Athens, he described as our common ancestor. This is the authoritative apostolic interpretation of the history recorded in Genesis 3, where we find the account of the fall. The original human lapse from God and godliness into sin and lostness is the fall. And the main points in that history may be summarized in three points. First, God made the first man the representative for all his posterity, just as he was to make Christ Jesus the representative for all God's elect. 
In each case, the representative was to involve those whom he represented in the fruits of his personal action, whether for good or for ill. Not unlike when a national leader involves his people in the consequences of his action when he declares war, this divinely chosen arrangement, whereby Adam would determine the destiny of his descendants, has been called the covenant of works. And second, God established Adam in a state of happiness and promised to continue this to him and his posterity after him if he showed fidelity by a course of perfect positive obedience, and specifically by not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By eating from this tree, Adam would, in effect, be claiming that he could know and decide what was good and evil for him, apart from God. Does that sound like the individualism of today, the error that is so pervasive today? And third, Adam, led by Eve, who was herself led by the serpent, who was Satan in disguise, defied God by eating the forbidden fruit. And the results were that the anti-God, self-aggrandizing mindset expressed in Adam's sin became part of him and of the moral nature that he passed on to his descendants. Adam and Eve found themselves gripped by a sense of pollution and guilt that made them ashamed and fearful before God. And they were cursed with expectations of pain and death, and they were expelled from the garden. At the same time, however, God began to show them saving mercy. He made for them arrangements for the garments of skin to cover their nakedness, and He promised that the woman's seed would one day crush the serpent's head. And all this foreshadowed Christ. As we read Genesis, we need to take care to avoid the error of mythologizing or allegorizing the text. The very structure itself directs us to read it as history. In Genesis, Adam is linked to the patriarchs and with them to the rest of mankind by genealogy, which which makes Adam as much a part of history as were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All the book's main characters after Adam are shown as sinners in one way or another, and the death of almost everyone else in the story is carefully recorded. Paul's statement, and Adam all die, only makes explicit what Genesis clearly implies. It may be fairly claimed that the fall narrative gives the only convincing explanation of the existence of sin in the world But why do I sin, and why do you sin? Why is sin such an inextricable part of our experience? And this brings us to the doctrine of original sin. Whereas the fall may be defined as the name given to Adam's first transgression and his immediate descent into a state of guilt and condemnation before God, original sin is fallen man's inescapable natural sinfulness the hereditary depravity and corruption of human nature because of Adam's fall as humanity's federal head. Blaise Pascal said that the doctrine of original sin seems an offense to reason, but once accepted, it makes total sense of the entire human condition. Specifically, he said in his own words, for it is beyond doubt that there is nothing 
which more shocks our reason than to say that the sin of the first man has rendered guilty those who, being so removed from this source, seem incapable of participation in it. This transmission does not only seem to us impossible, it seems also very unjust. For what is more contrary to the rules of our miserable justice than to damn eternally an infant incapable of will for a sin wherein he seems to have so little a share that it was committed 6,000 years before his existence? Certainly nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine. And yet without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. The knot of our condition takes its twist and turns in this abyss so that man is more inconceivable without this mystery than this mystery is inconceivable to man, end quote. Scripture diagnoses sin as a universal deformity of human nature found at every point in every person without exception. Both Testaments have names for it that display its ethical character as rebellion against God's rule, missing the mark God set for us to aim at, transgressing God's law, disobeying God's directives, offending God's purity by defiling oneself, and incurring guilt before the God, before God the judge. This moral deformity is dramatic. Sin stands revealed as a force of irrational, negative, and rebellious reaction to God's call and command. A spirit of fighting God in order to play God. The root of sin is pride and enmity against God. The spirit seen in Adam's first transgression and sinful acts have always been, been behind those thoughts, motives, and desires that in one way or another express the willful opposition of the fallen heart to God's claim on our lives. Sin may be comprehensively defined as a lack of conformity to the law of God in act, habit, attitude, outlook, disposition, motivation, and mode of existence. As we study the Scriptures, we see all the various aspects of sin illustrated and defined. How many of you are following Doug Wilson's Hermark Theology study? How many episodes? 200 and some odd now, I think. And these are just individual words used in the Greek, I believe, for sin. Luther said that Paul wrote Romans to magnify sin. And indeed, we need sin to be magnified for us. In the fallenness of our minds, we ignore, hide, minimize, and justify sin constantly. The particular faults, forms, and expressions of sin that Scripture detects and denounces are too numerous to begin to list. Original sin, meaning sin derived from our origin, is not a phrase we find in Scripture. Augustine did actually coin the phrase, but it is a phrase that brings into helpful focus the reality of sin in our understanding. The assertion of original sin means that not that sin belongs to the human nature as God made it. God made mankind upright. Nor that sin is involved in the process of reproduction and birth, but that sinfulness, sinfulness marks everyone from the point of conception 
and is there in the form of a motivationally twisted heart prior to any actual sins. That this inner sinfulness is the root and source of all actual sins, and that it comes to us in a real though mysterious way from Adam, our first representative before God. The assertion of original sin makes the point that we are not sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because we are sinners, born with a nature enslaved to sin. The doctrine of total depravity is commonly used to make explicit the implications of original sin. It signifies a corruption of our moral and spiritual nature that is total, not in degree, for no one is as bad as he or she might be, but in extent. It declares that no part of us is untouched by sin, and therefore no action of ours is as good as it should be. And consequently, nothing in us or about us ever appears meritorious in God's eyes. We cannot earn God's favor, no matter what we do, no matter how good we think we are. Unless grace saves us, we are lost. Total depravity entails total inability. That is, the state of not having in oneself the ability to respond to God and His Word in a sincere and wholehearted way. The confession once again says, Man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. The doctrines of original sin and total depravity, rightly understood, are inescapable. To put it in a way that only G.K. Chesterton could, Original sin is the only doctrine that is empirically validated by 2,000 years of human history. And I would alter that only to change 2,000 years to say the totality of human history. And consider this from Martin Luther, who was not one to mince words. But what, then, is original sin? According to the Apostle, it is not only the lack of a good quality in the will, nor merely the loss of a man's righteousness and ability, it is rather the loss of all his powers of body and soul, of his whole outward and inward perfections. We are sinners because we are the sons of a sinner. A sinner can beget only a sinner who is like him. And this short quote from Peter Kreeft. We are all insane. That is what original sin means. Sin is insanity. It is preferring finite joy to infinite joy creatures to the Creator, an unhappy godless self to a happy God-filled self. Only God can save us from this disease. That's true, is it not? There's an insanity attached to our sin. Our rationality is lost. We don't desire what we ought to desire. And it's true that only God can save us from our sin. Despite the repeated efforts of the political and cultural elite, there is no cure for this disease in government programs. I find full agreement with Sir Roger Scruton in Fools, Frauds, and Firebrands, Thinkers of the New Left, where he writes, the search for a policy to overcome original sin is not a coherent political project. 
Neither is it a coherent personal striving in your own flesh and strength project. But this leads us finally to the cure. The cure. Every one of you out there know that the cure for the problem of original sin is only found in the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. The cure is Christ. The cure is found in the good news, the gospel of Christ. But before we come to that glorious promise, in the hope in which we live, we should probably touch on our inability to embrace the cure apart from the gracious work of the great physician. Clear thinking about the fallen human condition requires we make a distinction between the two senses of what has been called the will. In the first sense, free will is a mark of human beings as such. All humans possess free will in the sense that they make their own decisions as to what they will do, choosing as they please in the light of their sense of right and wrong and the inclinations they feel. Thus, in this sense, we are all moral agents, answerable to God and to each other for our voluntary choices. And so was Adam. Both before and after he sinned, and so are we now, and so are the glorified saints who were confirmed in grace in such a sense that they no longer have it in them to sin. Inability to sin will be one of the delights and glories of heaven, but it will not terminate anyone's humanness. Glorified saints will still make choices in accordance with their nature, and those choices will not be any less the product of human free will just because they will always be good and right. Free will in the second sense, however, has been defined by theologians as the ability to choose all the moral options that a situation offers. And Augustine affirmed against Pelagius and most of the Greek fathers that original sin has robbed us of free will in this sense. This is to say we have no natural ability to to discern and choose God's way because we have no natural inclination toward God. Our hearts are in bondage to sin, and only the grace of regeneration can free us from that slavery. This, in essence, was what Paul taught in Romans 6, verses 16 through 23. Only the freed will, or the freed person, as Paul says, freely and heartily chooses righteousness. A permanent love of righteousness that is, an inclination of heart to the way of living that pleases God, is one aspect of the freedom that Christ gives. It is probably helpful to see that our will is in itself an abstract concept. My will is not a tangible part of me, which I choose to move or not move, like my hand or my foot. It is rather me choosing to act and then putting into action. The truth about free will in the first sense and about Christ freeing the sinner from sin's dominion in the second can be perhaps more clearly expressed if the word will is dropped and we say, I am a morally responsible free agent. I am a slave of sin who Christ must liberate. I am the fallen being who only has it in me to choose against God until God renews my heart. And this is where liberalism's inherent confidence in human reasoning and feeling 
runs directly counter to the Christian truth of human corruption. And it is why we need a robust apprehension of original sin. The liberal church's perspective grows out of the poisonous root of Pelagianism, that is the denial of original sin and inherited corruption. While it is true that Augustine coined the term original sin, and he did the earnest work of a theologian in working with the biblical truths fleshing out this concept, he did so in defense of the faith as he engaged the errors of Pelagius. Pelagius rejected the Scripture's teaching of original sin, and by rejecting the power and bondage of original sin and what it brings, Pelagius gave enormous power to man's will after the fall. According to Pelagius, man's will is not inclined towards sin, nor is it controlled by sin, or that man's inclinations have been polluted by Adam. He taught that man's will is not enslaved to a depraved Adamic nature, as if he is incapable of doing works that merit righteousness. He, thought, he taught that it is free, just as free after Genesis 3 as before. And so you can imagine then Pelagius's outrage when he read Augustine's prayer and confessions, give what you command, command what you will. A prayer that implies man's inability and dependence upon God as well as man's need for God's grace to do the very thing God has commanded him to do. If we take Pelagius' perspective to its logical conclusion, we really don't need God's help to be obedient to his commands. So the question is, just how deadly was Adam's sin, and what does sin do to a person? How you answer the question reveals how important God's grace is in the salvation of your soul and how serious our bondage to sin is. As Christians, we have been set free from sin's bondage and dominion. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. We have been supernaturally regenerated and made alive to God through union with Christ in His death and resurrection. And this means that the deepest desire of our heart is to serve God by practicing righteousness. And this is something we did not have before. Sin's dominion involves not only constant acts of disobedience, but also a constant lack of zeal for law-keeping rising sometimes to positive resentment and hatred toward the law. Now, however, being changed in heart and motivated by gratitude for, the ex for acceptance through free grace and energized by the Holy Spirit, we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by so that we should serve the in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. This means that our attempts at obedience are now joyful and integrated in a way that was never true before. Sin no longer rules us. We have been liberated from sin's bondage. Liberated by the Lord Jesus Christ. Liberated in Christ. Liberated when we were regenerated and liberated each and every day as we face the siren call sway and stumbling blocks of sin, finding victory 
in the Savior's victory. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin hath left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Sometimes the most familiar and simple hymn lyrics contain the most profound truths. Carry them with you. Yes, the first man, Adam, fell. Humanity's representative head fell and sin entered into the world and all his posterity born through ordinary generation sinned in him and are born with a sin nature. Therefore all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are desperately in need of the Savior. Adam's sin plunged all mankind into sin, guilt, and alienation from God. Apart from Christ, we are all in a state of spiritual death and subject to the evil one's power. Physical death is already at work in our bodies, and we will one day die a physical death. This is the first death. And for those who die apart from the Lord also die a second death, eternal death and unceasing torment for their sins. Do not be beguiled by the wisdom of the world. Know that this very concept of original sin and the fall and the sin nature in man is at the heart of the attack of the enemy. It is the cultural mantra that you are naturally good. And when you begin to embrace that, all the doctrines of Scripture began to collapse. It's that serious, and that's why we cover it today. But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ our Lord. In Christ, believers have victory over Satan, sin, death, and hell itself. When we take hold of Christ by grace through faith, a faith that is itself the free gift of God, we discover that He has already taken hold of us. This is the cure. This is the only cure, and this he does willingly for his own glory. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we can but offer our humble thanksgiving to you for your goodness to us in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have a new federal head who has freed us from the bondage to sin and who has liberated us from the curse of the second death and provided the cure to original sin. Lead us in the way everlasting. Sanctify us by your Holy Spirit. Following Augustine, we pray, Give what thou commandest, and command what thou wilt. Hear our prayer, for we ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.